Today, October 22, is a very significant day in the history of our beginnings. Welcome to the Avenue History Podcast, Season 2, Episode number 17, Why He Left. Last time, we talked about Ludwig Conradi, the tireless, towering German-American leader who basically built Adventism in Europe. We also talked about W.W. Fletcher, who, like Conradi, also left the church. But I promised to release a special episode on why Conradi left the church for our patrons. But as I was working on that special episode, I realized there's some good stuff in here that I wanted everyone to hear. Therefore, this episode doesn't really advance our chronological story. I would have called it episode 16B in season two, but Apple won't allow me to do that. So here we are. We're going to call it episode 17. Now, the goal of this episode is to explore the reasons why Conradi left the church, because this story I find is somewhat foundational to understanding the the trajectory of Adventism in the 20th century and beyond. And we're going to see why a little bit when we get to the end of this episode. So before we jump in, let me just say the patrons are not getting this episode as an exclusive. What they are going to get is a video of this episode that will be posted on Patreon. So they get to watch this episode happen. The rest of you all get to hear this episode happen. Same content, just depends if you want to watch a dude talking into a microphone or not. But anyways, up to you. If you want to do that, then uh, join us on Patreon. And uh, you can take a look at the video. All right, let's jump in, guys. I want to begin just with a summary of Conradi's life because it's important to understand the man before we understand his reasons for leaving. And because these episodes come out once a month, sometimes it's hard to remember what happened last month. All right. So he was born, as you may remember, in Germany, 1856, into a Roman Catholic home. He learned Latin, French, Greek, which is incredible, in addition to course, German and eventually English. His father died when he was young. Conradi sought his fortune, like so many others, in America. He left both his mother and his Catholicism behind in Germany and worked as a cooper, which means he made barrels, mostly for breweries. He picked cotton and sugarcane in the south before ending up in Iowa, clearing land for a Methodist farmer. Now, the farmer may have been Methodist, but Conradi was living with an Adventist family, and about the age of 22, he became an Adventist. Now, Conradi was then sent to Battle Creek College. And a couple of years later, um, he finished his four-year degree. In 18 months, actually. In 18 months, he finished his four-year degree. While working at the Review and Herald office as a typesetter. And at 26, he was ordained to preach. And that same year, he remembered an English Baptist girl he had met in Iowa and then wrote a letter to her proposing marriage. How romantic. And so at 28, the newlyweds were sent by the church to be some of the first Adventist missionaries to Europe to succeed, in someone else's words, where Tchaikovsky and J.N. Andrews had failed. I dare say Conradi had a richer life experience by his 30th birthday than anyone else in the church. Really. I mean, he had been virtually left for dead with smallpox in Cincinnati 
he had been making charts of Hebrew roots for the University of Chicago all before he turned 30. I mean, he worked in the South. He had been in Europe. He knew all these languages, right? Like there was just, there was nobody who could equal his experience before the age of 30, even in the Adventist church. And that's saying something because a lot of these Adventist founders are young people who had done great things, right? Who had founded great things. Uh, But who could equal Conradi by that stage of his life? I mentioned in the last episode that Ellen White paid Conradi one of the greatest compliments that Ellen White could give. She stood up in front of the 1901 General Conference session, pointed him out, and said that he had been doing the work of several men. And that he did. He didn't just transplant American Adventism into Germany. In some ways, he he was trying to refound Adventism there. He knew that a story about a Baptist farmer named William Miller in New England who predicted that Jesus would come in 1844 wasn't going to impress very many people in Europe. So he portrayed Adventism as this as the natural heir to the Protestant Reformation. That that my friends his fellow Germans could understand, right? Now, over the course of his career, we've mentioned that he crossed the Atlantic 70 times or so. He established Adventist outposts in Egypt, Ethiopia, South America, and Syria. There are pictures of him on Mars Hill in Greece and before the Temple of Heaven in Peking, China. Conradi was the reincarnation in many ways of James White. He was like James White plus. And I suppose it's just as likely that James White type people either burn out and leave the church or they die young as it is that they get to have an Adventist funeral dying of old age. Uh, These people, these James White type people, these hard drivers, these innovative, disciplined utterly focused people are 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 just as likely to to burn out or or to die young than they are to to grow old and it so it shouldn't shouldn't surprise you that there are there was more fear of Conradi than there was love for him in Europe right he got the job done didn't he, he didn't necessarily make friends with everybody but he got the job done he did the work of several men he was one of the last Adventist pioneers. I mean, the the people who truly embody that mindset of being able to go into a a kind of a spiritual wasteland as far as Adventism is concerned and build something and and do some spiritual irrigation in that place. And, And you take a handful of people and you turn them into thousands and tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands over the course of your life. He had that mindset. He was tough like that. Now, in hindsight, the seeds for Conradi's defection appeared to be planted during the Ballinger defection at the turn of the 20th century. Now, I'm kind of sorry for not covering that whole story uh, more than just a passing mention. But at the time, we had Jones and Wagner going off the rails, and I knew Kellogg was just coming around the corner, and it's like... I don't know. I didn't want Avenus history to just be this story about people who left, right? I wanted to cover some other things as well. Uh, so I kind of skipped over Ballinger a little bit, but uh, maybe I shouldn't have. Ballinger, Ballinger also doubted the sanctuary doctrine. You're going to find that as a common theme uh, among these prominent people who leave the Seventh-day Adventist Church. 
doubted the sanctuary doctrine, doubted Ellen White's inspiration, right, her prophetic gift. Conradi defended both doctrines at the time, but but Ballinger seems to have rattled Conradi in some way. He, he planted seeds in Conradi's life that would bear fruit over the next few decades. And by 1910, the idea was floating around that Conradi was undermining both the Adventist sanctuary doctrine and the inspiration of Ellen White. Those two things all go together. Ellen White is kind of like uh, at the door of Adventism. It, you can sometimes get in around her, but you can't get out without going through her, without dealing with her, right? Because if she's truly a prophet, you just don't walk away from a prophet, right? You got you to gotta deal with that. So that's why she tends to pop up in a lot of these objections people have to Adventism. All right, so he, he, he was accused of, of undermining the sanctuary doctrine, accused of undermining the inspiration of Ellen White as early as 1910. And on the latter charge, Conradi claimed to have never gotten a rebuking letter from Ellen White and always remained on good terms with her. We know that Daniels got some letters from Ellen White, right? A lot of people did. Well, you're not doing right. You need to change this, whatever. They got testimonies from Ellen White. These are the, the testimonies that Holmes was so obsessively searching for in the General Conference vault trying to find uh, something, some kind of dirt, some kind of counsel against Daniels that he could use to get Daniels fired. And, um, you know, Conradi was happy. Never got a testimony of correction from Ellen White. Always remained on good terms with her. You know, he was adamant about that. Now, that may be true, but let's just say it helped his relationship with Ellen White that he worked on the other side of the world than Ellen White and that he, you know, wrote in other languages than English. And what's more, Conradi seems to have been protected by uh, general conference leaders in America, right? So after he led German Adventists to pray for the Kaiser patriotically and allowed them to fight in the First World War, uh, Daniels and the other leaders more or less gave him a pass. When a group of Adventists who held to the historic church teachings on non-combatancy, when they broke away from the church there in Germany, the Reform Adventist, Daniels, again, you know, in the General Conference sided with Conradi. They gave him a pass, you know, it was a tough situation. What are you going to do? You know, just whatever. Let's move on. He was a, he was a, that is, Conradi was a fellow moderate Adventist. He had an impeccable service record. What's more, he was in an impossible situation during the war. No one was going to sack Conradi over this stuff. You couldn't afford to lose him over this stuff. And the fact that Conradi worked more or less alone in Europe, Right? Most of the people we're talking about in this podcast, they're not in Europe with Conradi. Right? He's he's kind of got um he's kind of unopposed in that in that place. Kind of like Jones was in America in the eighteen nineties. There was just kind of no you know, Wagner was off in England and Ellen White was in Australia with Daniels and, and Willie and, and Jones kinda of had a run of the place in America. So so Conradi does in Europe as well for much of this time. Much of this time. And so he had this, he worked alone, more or less. He had this uh, long and glorious service record that he worked in languages other than English. The fact that he was ideologically kind of one of us, a moderate Adventist, like many of the other general conference leaders. And this, these, these factors combined to allow Conradi to kind of blindside church leaders. Maybe it allowed Conradi to blindside himself, you know. Uh, but they just didn't see it coming. I think maybe mentally they just looked at Europe, especially Central Europe, maybe not so much England, but Central Europe, and they're they're like, well, he's got it covered, right? The church there is thriving, everything's going well, da-da-da-da-da, just leave him alone. 
So why did Conradi leave? I'm going to share some of the reasons Conradi himself gave and maybe a few of the reasons the church leaders have given. But just keep in mind, just I'm just saying this as a pastor more than a podcaster. Sometimes the reasons people give for leaving aren't always their actual reasons for leaving. Sometimes they're the reasons they, they want people to think that they left in, in you know, or, or reasons that they come up with after the fact. We're going to see in this in this episode that Conradi gives a few reasons in the beginning for why he has problems with the church, but as time goes on, those reasons expand exponentially. Suddenly there's a bunch of reasons why he left, and it's easy to, to kind of look at the reasons that pop up five years later or ten years later and read them back into history to be like, oh, well, these are all the original reasons. And it's like they, they weren't. You know, those things came up later. Um, so keep that in mind. The reasons that people give for leaving aren't always the reasons people left. I'm not trying to say anything about Conradi here. That's just a generally true statement in my experience. All right? So Conradi gave three areas where he differed from the denomination, three areas he thought were important. And these three areas he gave early on in the process, and he was very clear about them. So what were those reasons? First, he differed from the church on the cleansing of the sanctuary. What does it mean that the sanctuary is cleansed? Again, we're going to Daniel 8 here. Second, on the place and character of Christ's ministry in the heavenly sanctuary. Again, it's a, it's a sanctuary doctrine issue. The first two are about the sanctuary doctrine. Disagrees with the cleansing of the sanctuary. Disagrees with the place and character of Christ's ministry in the heavenly sanctuary. What Jesus is doing in the sanctuary. Third, on the acceptance of the teachings of the spirit of prophecy. And if you're listening, you're not a Seventh-day Adventist. In other words, that just means Ellen White, right? The prophetic ministry of Ellen White. Okay, so those are his three objections. The first two have to do with the sanctuary doctrine. The third one has to do with the inspiration of Ellen White. Now, when Conradi met with leaders in Europe for his first trial, I'm going to put trial in air quotes, in 1931, the, the first issue that surrounded, that the, the kind of the issue that sparked this was his commentary on Revelation, as well as some various articles he'd written as far back as 1929. It, you know, it seems that these seeds that had been planted during the Ballinger era, they... They slowly bore fruit. We talked in the last episode about how he was kind of annoyed, bothered by the fact that he had lost his uh, presidency of Europe in 1922, of the Central European Division. And even though it was a technically a promotion, it didn't feel like a promotion. And and so, like, the you know, this kind of dis- discontent is in his life around this time. And it, and it seems like he's trying to work out his ideas by publishing them like it's like he wants to start a conversation but he's not explicitly going to the you know to the general conference and saying hey i disagree with you guys about this he's he's trying to work them out in articles he's trying to work out what he believes in in articles and then finally this book on revelation which he asks the church to print now articles are easier to get out because again he's a prestigious leader in the church and he has the ability to send an article in and say hey publish this but when it comes to books there's a book committee and the book committees at the publishing houses in Adventism, their job is to read through it and, of course, make um, grammatical changes and, and look at the organization of the material and the flow of it and all of that, figure out how much it should cost. You know, all, this is all part of their, their job, but also the theological content. They want to make sure that what they publish is in harmony with Adventist beliefs and values. And so 
when Conradi's commentary and revelation, uh, when it reaches them, there's concerns, like deep, deep concerns. And they're realizing, oh my goodness, what happened here? What happened? They note, for instance, that when Conradi talked about the 2300-day prophecy, now this is in Daniel 8, uh, it's a cornerstone of Adventist interpretation, cornerstone of this sanctuary doctrine, right, that Jesus moved from the holy to the most holy in 1844, and thus this, this movement of Adventism, of Adventists were, were born, they're, they're called from that moment to proclaim this movement of Jesus and his, and his you know, intercession for us, all these sort of things, okay? Uh, you know, basically, we exist as a people. We have a, a calling as a people because of this. And so that they note that when he, Conradi, talks about this, he isn't very strong on it. Isn't very strong. It just, it's kind of limp. It doesn't, it, as they read it, it doesn't sound like an Adventist book. On the 1260-year prophecy, another Adventist stalwart prophecy since the very beginning, since the Millerite days, Conradi abandons the, the, this traditional interpretation altogether. And what's more, Conradi reshapes these prophecies to have them point towards the Protestant Reformation rather than, you know, the early 1800s or the late 1700s as the 1260-day prophecy ends, 1798. Uh, he just kind of abandons all that, has them all point towards the Reformation. Now, the book committee notes, quote, According to this interpretation of Revelation, there is scarcely an excuse for our denominational existence. End quote. Right? Like, you're not having any of these prophecies point to us. This is the way we've taught them for almost 100 years. And if they don't point to us, if they point to something else, then why do we even exist? Right? Like, what's, what's the, you know, how can you not, how, how can you not talk about that, Conradi? How can you not... Uh, you, you know, defend Adventism, explain Adventism. Isn't that the point of a commentary on Revelation? Like, if we're not, if we're not part of this, these prophecies in Daniel and Revelation, you know, then how? In what way is this an Adventist book? So the general feeling, I mean, beyond those those prophetic objections, the general feeling was that this book was a mess. It was not organized well. It was not written well. It would only cause confusion among Adventists and non-Adventists alike. Well, Conradi responded to the book committee's criticisms by basically acknowledging the truth in many of their criticisms. He did believe the Reformers had more light on the sanctuary than Adventists. He did believe that Jesus entered the most holy place after his ascension to heaven, not in 1844, as Adventists believed. Conradi said, quote, I believe that since AD 34, Christ had been doing that work of mediator that our denomination ascribes to him now since 1844, end quote. He believed that Adventists had done the Reformers wrong and that in some ways the Reformers were ahead of Adventists. After all, Luther embraced righteousness by faith immediately. How about Adventists? Why did it take until 1888? And, and even then, like, has it, has it stuck with us as a people? You may be wondering, okay, that's the sanctuary. That's his objections to the sanctuary. What does Ellen White have to do with this? Well, obviously, Ellen White backed up those traditional interpretations of prophecy. But Conradi had also grabbed hold of that controversial, loose thread dangling in Adventism. Exactly how was Ellen White inspired? Right? This was a big thing, you remember, in the 1919 Bible Conference. Uh, thought inspiration versus verbal inspiration 
right? Or exactly which, which parts of her writings were inspired? Were they all inspired? Ellen White had included a quote from Martin Luther in her Great Controversy book, which where, where Luther said that he didn't see how the final judgment couldn't be more than 300 years away. And it was a quote that appeared in scores of apocalyptic books, com, you know, commentaries on Revelation and Ellen White's day. And it was supposedly from Luther's table talk sayings. And I say supposedly because Conradi knew German and had Luther's works and couldn't find that quote anywhere in the table talk uh, sayings. Now, table talk uh, for Luther was kind of like his students and friends, and you know they wrote down things that he supposedly said um, around the dinner table when they were over visiting. And so afterwards, they kind of collected. You know, the friends got together, students got together, collected all these things and put them together. It kind of is something like a hadith in Islam. These are kind of like the sacred sayings. Luther didn't write them himself; they're kind of secondhand. And so they don't quite have the same level of authority as if Luther would have written it himself. You don't know if they've been embellished or, you know, exactly where they came from. But anyways, Conradi looked in, during, you know, in, in the collection of Luther's table talk sayings, couldn't find them anywhere. So, you know, the question is, so was Ellen White inspired when she included that saying in her book? Conradi explained the whole Luther thing to F.M. Wilcox, editor of the Review. Luther believes that Conradi that the judgment was near in his day, not 300 years off. Are you willing to print that in the review? We gave him quote after quote after quote about Luther and Melanchthon, and, you know, saying that the, the judgment is near, it's close, you know, the, we're in the last days, all that kind of stuff. And so it's like, Wilcox, are you willing to print that in the review? Are you willing to correct all of those false statements from John Nevins Andrews in 1855 to James White, who made the same statements, to Ellen White, who made the same statements in, you know, the Great Controversy, that said otherwise, right? They were all wrong. Luther never said that. There's no evidence that Luther ever said that the judgment was 300 years off. He believed that it was coming soon. So, uh, you know, are you going to print a retraction in the review? Well, Avenus and Conradi's mind were warping the history of the Reformation in order to magnify the importance of Avenus history. If Luther expected the judgment in 300 years, then that would, you know, from Luther's day, fall in the early 1800s when Seventh-day Adventism arose. How convenient, right? So they took this apocryphal statement of Luther as a kind of lay prophecy, not like a serious prophecy, just a, you know, kind of a casual prophecy foretelling the coming of the final message which Avenus would be proclaiming throughout the world. But as Conradi was saying, there was no credible source for this supposed saying of Luther. And besides, it ignored all of the other times Luther said the second coming was imminent, the last days were imminent in his day. Conradi didn't want Luther to be playing a mere John the Baptist to the coming Avenus movement. And so he, he set out to show that Avenus were wrong about Luther. They didn't recognize that Luther preached the everlasting gospel long before Avenus, right? Like, don't cut my man Luther down. And so... You know, was Ellen White mistaken to do so? Was she inspired when she when she adds these quotes? So, like, so his critique here is kind of it's poking a very soft spot in Adventism at this moment, a, a gray area within Adventism, because you're going to have some people, obviously, who who believe in Ellen White's verbal inspiration. Every word she included in her books is inspired. Um, you know, so the, the, the more fundamentalist side right now is just, you know, they're going to defend her 
Uh, and you're going to have the other side that will still want to defend her, um, you know, but they, they, they don't mind if, if she got a historical quote wrong. It's not a huge deal, right? But, but still, it's kind of messy to unravel, well, was Andrews wrong back in the day in the 1850s? Was James White wrong back in the day? Like, you know, Conradi was asking a really hard question. Are you going to repudiate what the earliest Avenus said when they were wrong about something? It may not be a hard thing to do technically to, to, to say James White was wrong about something. But, you know, again, it's that slippery slope, right? We've, we've seen that, uh, that defense being used. Uh, Butler said it, you know, if we adopt righteousness by faith, if we say we were wrong, if, you know, if we were wrong about the ten horns, you know, Uriah Smith there, uh, then, you know, there people, our critics are going to say, what are you wrong about next? What are you wrong about next? And there, there's, you know, so there's a hesitation. Are we going to go down a slippery slope because of this? If we just start saying that we were wrong about this and wrong about that. Uh, so it's, it's a tough issue. You know, Conradi is, is, is kind of targeting a very, a soft spot, a gray area within Adventism that, that Adventists themselves had not been fully, they hadn't figured out exactly how Ellen White's inspiration works. Hadn't quite figured it all out. So this was a tough, tough question. These were these were tricky issues. Was Conradi to be on trial for saying Ellen White used poor sources sometimes? I mean, Ellen White herself had 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 acknowledged that she needed better sources when she was revising her Great Controversy in 1911. Was uh, was he on trial for lionizing Martin Luther? I mean, Ellen White famously in Great Controversy never says a negative word about Martin Luther. I mean, Martin Luther is an unqualified hero in Adventism. So is he going to be in trouble for for lionizing Luther? Was he going to be on trial for questioning whether the earliest Adventists might have been wrong about something? Well, at least in theory, the whole project of Adventism was to learn from the past and to keep improving. So there wasn't any theoretical objection to correcting past mistakes. Was Conradi right or wrong in his criticism of how Adventists did history? Some of his concerns fell into these, these gray areas, right? Like the inspiration of Ellen White. Adventists weren't crystal clear on how that worked, and some of his other concerns, particularly about the sanctuary and how he interpreted prophecy, were clearly out of bounds of Adventism. There was no gray area about that. So the question wasn't whether Conradi had departed from Adventism on a few important points. The question was what it meant that he had departed from Adventism on a few important points. Now, that may sound a little strange to put it that way, but Keep in mind that church leaders' first reaction was simply to ask him to be quiet about the points where he differed from the church. C.H. Watson, the General Conference president, said it best, quote, We do not want to attack you, but as shepherds of the flock, we must protect the flock in the way that seems best to us, end quote. Which is to say, the General Conference only wanted to protect the members from heresy, not to attack Conradi as a heretic. It was only when Conradi couldn't keep quiet about his ideas, as inevitably happens, okay, uh, that the church leaders removed his credentials and, and, and kind of moved against him. But before they did so, they, they carefully studied his ideas. They formed a committee to deal with it. They knew they didn't agree with him. That was a foregone conclusion, right? But they had to be able to defend their disagreement. And the leaders there realized that Avenus hadn't carefully defined their sanctuary doctrine. I mean, there were parts of it that were uh, pretty much set in stone. And other other parts of it that, uh, you know, some people believe one way, some people believe the other way. 
they had the the leaders said that they they all had heard some of the wildest applications being preached under the name of the sanctuary doctrine among some of the the church's evangelists but nevertheless the the goal here wasn't to define the doctrine but defend it and if you'll allow me a moment of foreshadowing the, defining the doctrine uh not defining the doctrine but defending it in some ways became a standard operating procedure for the for the church going forward as these things tend to go they start with a few issues that are discussed with great courtesy and kindness i mean over and over and over again conradi and church leaders are you know reiterating their their christian affection for one another uh, how how they respect one another, and they, they don't want things to end badly, you know, and all these sort of things. It, it's the way it always begins. And then it turns acrimonious, and the disagreement spreads to other fronts. So it did by 1933, when the General Conference brought up uh, 50 questions. In fact, they were sent to the General Conference. 50 questions that, that Avenist leaders in Europe were having to deal with because of Conradi. Some of these were... were you know, directly from Conradi, things that he was saying that they felt they needed to respond to. But some of this were just questions the members had as a result of Conradi. Maybe some of them were just collected, you know, the questions the members had in general, not related to Conradi. But uh, it's not like these are 50 things Conradi was saying. Uh, he was saying some of them, members themselves, uh, it led to other questions that they had that they didn't have the answer to over there. And so uh, these questions were questions about Ellen White and her statements about the amalgamation. You can Google that. Uh, that's always a dangerous thing to recommend people do, but you can Google that. Uh, Ellen White and the 144,000, or, or uh, whether Ellen White died deeply in debt, or whether Ellen White set 1951 as the date for Jesus' return. Like These are all these, the, all these questions that people had. And, and the questions show a huge lack of familiarity with Ellen White among the believers in Europe. So that whatever doubts that came from Conradi, they, they found gaps in the Avenist armor there. H.F. Schubert, president of the Central European Division, now after Conradi, who, by the way, I should say, I keep saying president of the division. Technically, he's a vice president of the General Conference who's in charge of Central Europe, but it's just easier to say president of the division. Uh, yeah. Anyways, Schubert asked for reinforcements from America, who would be ready, quote, to answer all questions concerning the spirit of prophecy and the sanctuary, end quote. In other words, the, the, the church leaders in America are realizing our members in Europe, like they have some really, they've heard a lot of stuff and they don't know how to answer it. It seems that uh, the writings of Ellen White didn't find as strong of a hold there under Conradi's leadership as it did in Australia or in America. Now, Conradi went on to call the Adventist church Laodicea, claimed it was being run by an autocracy where there was no freedom of conscience, which I think just about everybody who leaves the church says, accused them of being legalists. He claimed that he was building a new movement among these Seventh-day Baptists that lots of Adventist ministers were secretly on his side. They were writing him letters saying, just give us the word and we'll join you, Conradi which, of course, worried the church quite a bit. Some Adventists in Europe, they fought back against what they saw as Conradi's propaganda. They were mocking his decision to join the Seventh-day Baptists. I mean, after all, despite Conradi's disagreement with certain parts of Adventist theology, he still had more in common with Adventists than Baptists, didn't he? 
And they weren't slow to throw Conradi's own words back in his face, especially when Conradi had criticized Canwright for leaving the church, for attacking the church, and then for joining the Baptists. Well, Conradi had joined the Baptists, not because he believed their theology more than Avenus theology, but because they gave him what he valued most, the ability to preach what he believed without interference. But before Conradi could gain that freedom, he had to earn his license to preach in the Seventh-day Baptist Church. And for that, you need to be a member of a local Seventh-day Baptist congregation. Okay, easily done. But then you had to face a panel of questioners, some from the local church, some from the denomination as a whole. It was a really interesting process. One of those questioners, a university president, asked Conradi what he believed about the state of the dead. Because as you may be aware of, Adventists believe that you sleep in death and you wait for Jesus' return. Baptists believe you go to heaven or hell immediately upon death. So Conradi shrewdly replied that there was no life outside of Christ. <laughs> so one of those theological non-answer answers, right? He's kind of threading that needle to satisfy both sides. And it, it tells me that he still... Uh, likely believed in soul sleep like Avenus, but uh, didn't want to let on to his, his new friends that that is indeed the case. No one seemed to press the matter any further as, let's be honest, the Seventh-day Baptists, if you read their Sabbath recorder issues about this, uh, they wanted Conradi. Like, it was a big fish to get. They had no presence in Germany, and so, I mean, there's really nothing to lose, right? Like, we're going to get a veteran rock star preacher ultra talented he's going to be in a country where we don't have any southern or southern baptist seventh day baptist uh he can't ruin anything there all he can do is build so let's let him go to work besides conradi promised that he could take 600 adventists into the seventh day baptist church that he was going to be building in germany i mean for the seventh day baptist it was a win-win a baptist uh there who was present at uh at Conradi's interview for his uh, get his preaching license, the Baptist cheekily asked one of the questioners, and he actually asked the university president guy, quote, if we give Elder Conradi freedom of our denomination to preach and believe as he sees fit, will we be left our freedom to continue to believe as we have heretofore seen fit? End quote. Which just goes to show that many Baptists didn't understand why their leaders were so keen to land Conradi as a recruit. I mean, he, the guy's basically saying, yeah, if we give him the freedom to preach you know, whatever he believes, do we still retain the right to believe whatever we want to believe, right? He didn't expect Conradi to, to uh, be preaching Seventh-day Baptist theology. They still saw him as a kind of as a Seventh-day Adventist, and they're like, all right, whatever. Well, one Adventist who was helping uh, the Seventh-day Baptists with our general conference in 1932 happened to meet Conradi there. He was invited to speak, and they had a frank conversation. I mean, Conradi was surprised to see a Seventh-day Adventist at the Seventh-day Baptist general conference, but uh, this is what they did. Uh, you know, we've we've talked about this in prior episodes that Adventists and Seventh-day Baptists worked together very closely, especially in the 1860s and 70s. Uh, they were on largely good relations, and so they helped each other out. Well, this uh, this Adventist who was there happened to meet Conradi. They had a frank conversation about his reasons for leaving, and Conradi repeated his grievances, added more. Uh, it wasn't just a theological issue for him. Very tellingly, he told this Adventist, quote, 
Two years ago was my golden anniversary in the ministry. Fifty years I had preached this message, and my brethren never sent me a postcard even. End quote. So you get the impression that um, it wasn't just a theological issue for Conradi. Now, there are a million issues being debated between both sides. These just blossomed and grew. And if you ask me what was going on, this is the story of Conradi I would tell you. Ballinger helped shake things loose in Conradi. He began nursing some doubts and differences, but largely kept them to himself when he was replaced as president of the Central European Division. This shook him loose even more. He began writing articles and books in order to develop his ideas, to kind of flesh them out, see where they go. And when the church predictably shot them down, right, they're not going to publish them underneath the Avenist name, his ties to the church began breaking. And it felt like 50 years of service meant nothing, that he didn't have breathing room to believe as he felt called to believe. And what began with a few disagreements in Christian charity evolved into a war ranging, uh, raging on several fronts as he discovered new disagreements and fresh grievances. It was like watching a couple go through a divorce. First, they began kind of moving away from each other silently. Maybe they don't even realize it themselves. Second, it comes out in the open. They realize they should split up. They're not good for each other anymore, but they promise to be friends forever. Michael W. Smith. Uh, third, it all breaks down and becomes bitter, acrimonious. The past begins to be rewritten. And suddenly the little things you actually didn't mind all of those years were the most unbearable burdens you had to carry. Speaking of the past being revised, Conradi did plenty of it. And this is what you do when you separate yourself from a denomination or a marriage. You have to redefine yourself, often by showing how your husband or your former church did you wrong. So in 1934, Conradi published a book calling the origins of the Adventist church as corrupt and those early Adventists dishonest. And a few years later, he wrote a, a history of the Seventh-day Adventist church, which really wasn't a history of the Seventh-day Adventist church, but he called Adventism a rather strange mixture and writes that Ellen White herself claimed to be infallible, which is completely untrue. And he knew it. But the divorce was finalized. History was revised to fit the new reality, right? So it wasn't a story of, I'm, you know, I gave 50 years to this denomination, 50 years of excellent service. They didn't show gratitude. Now it's, they're a false denomination, right? I escaped these people, you know, kind of a, a, a shift uh, in tone. You know, he's kind of rewriting history in that direction. And Conradi, with this, with this history revised, he was free to die in peace, which he basically did after writing those two books. Well, who wins in such a divorce? I mean, nobody wins. Adventists owe a lot to Conradi, and that should not be minimized. Conradi owed a lot to Adventists, and that should not be minimized. What began as a gentlemanly agreement got out of hand precisely because few people are able to maintain the tension of having a deep disagreement while also maintaining Christian love and affection for each other. I mean, just sooner or later, in most people, something snaps. Either the Christian love prevails, and, and you just kind of bury the disagreements, you work them out, or the disagreement prevails, and the Christian love breaks down and becomes kind of ugly. Okay? And most people, something snaps, and when it does, history is often the first casualty. Conradi went on to absurd lengths to revise Avenus history in his favor. 
writing things he he just he had to know were not true. Some avenues, no doubt, at least kind of unofficially, at least in conversation, probably did something similar, right? They might say, well, I've always had doubts of Conradi. You know, I always knew he wasn't one of us. When in reality, if you would have asked them way back when, they would have absolutely agreed that he was one of us, right? But you you kind of, you go back over the past and you realize, uh, you know, this thing and that thing and that thing, and you begin to interpret them in a new way and you realize, oh yeah, he was never really fully, you know, for us. Uh, these sort of things happen on both sides. But Conradi also represents something else in Adventist histories. He represents another failed attempt to refound Adventism on something other than the sanctuary doctrine. He tried to interpret Adventism as, as the latest manifestation, maybe a, a perfecting of Protestantism. He failed to convince the church leaders to find a new historical homeland for Adventism, right? To, to root themselves more in the Protestant Reformation, not so much on 1844 and all of that. Now, unlike Ballinger and others before him, Conradi challenged the sanctuary story at a time when Adventists had never been more fuzzy over its details. And church leaders were beginning to realize that they had divisions even among themselves over the, what the doctrine was about, at least in its, its tiny details. It was said that the only thing more contentious then A.G. Daniels' nomination at the 1922 General Conference session was this new view of the daily, which pertains to the sanctuary doctrine. I'm not going to go into it right now. Just go like listen to a bunch of episodes. Were, were, were gaps appearing in the Adventist armor? Like, I mean, I think fewer and fewer Adventists, the deeper we go into the 20th century, would be able to tell you with any precision what the sanctuary doctrine was. Conradi decided Adventism didn't need it. Was that true? Conversely, the more these former Adventists attacked it, the more the sanctuary doctrine became Adventism's theological flag. We may not know where its storied symbols come from, but we know what the flag represents. The guys who desecrate the flag are bad. The guys who respect and honor the flag are good. And in that way, Conradi's plan backfired. I mean, he wanted to build a new theological foundation for the Adventist movement, but he only ended up in showing Adventists that those who build on other foundations end up leaving Adventism. The sanctuary doctrine's place in Adventism owes as much to its opponents as to its friends. After all, they wouldn't attack it so frequently if it wasn't important, right? So we see two strains running through the story. The first is the strain of Adventists who find the sanctuary doctrine unconvincing, maybe embarrassing, theologically weak. They want to replace its role in Adventism with something else something more gospel-focused, something, you know, like the Reformation. And the other strain of Adventists, they, they desire to uphold the founding story of Adventism, to strengthen it, to study it more, to teach the whole of Adventism more and more about it. Uh, and, and they are represented by another rising star in Adventism whom we will get to, M.L. Andreasen. So he's going to come up you know, after this and, and just really emphasize the importance of the sanctuary doctrine in the wake of Conradi. And we'll get to him. We'll get to him. But one thing is clear. It was made clear by a Seventh-day Adventist who was friends with a prominent Southern Baptist. I keep saying Southern Baptist. Seventh-day Baptist. <laughs> oh, man, guys. Anyways, it was made clear by a Seventh-day Adventist who was friends with a prominent Seventh-day Baptist. There we go. 
and this was said at a time at the time when Conradi was leaving. The Adventist offered an astute little prophecy to his Baptist friend. This is what he said, quote, I think Seventh-day Adventists are going to be disappointed, and Elder Conradi himself is going to be disappointed, end quote. That much was true. Who wins in a divorce? Nobody. We'll see you next time. Hey, it's me again. If this episode didn't quench your desire for more Adventist history content, then go subscribe to Adventist History Extra. It's a private podcast that I do for those who support the Adventist History Project. You can get access to Adventist History Extra on the website, which is AdventistHistoryProject.org, or by becoming a patron at Patreon.com. Now, there's more variety at Adventist History Extra, in case you were wondering. I do some interviews. Sometimes I do bonus episodes. You know, I, we had a good episode here in the Adventist History Podcast, and I want to talk some more about it. Other times, I go behind the scenes at conferences I attend, like the Women in Seventh-day Adventist History Conference. What's more, just as a second announcement for you, Michael Campbell and I are leading a bus tour in October 2024. So... If you want to go drive around New England a bit, see the, see the sights and have some fun, well, you can sign up for our bus tour newsletter, once again, at AdventistHistoryProject.org. And we're going to keep you up to date there about what you need to know to go and sign up for that and all of that. So just to be very, 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 very clear, we don't have a sign up for the bus tour itself, but it's a sign up for the newsletter so you can stay informed about the bus tour so I don't have to make announcements every single time and interrupt these episodes and all of that. That's where those announcements are going to be. So if you're interested, head on over to the website. You can sign up for the bus tour newsletter over there. Okay, I think that about does it. Thanks again for listening.